Last time we spoke about the aftermath of the battle for Attu. The American victory over Attu meant the end of the Aleutian campaign for the Japanese, as Tokyo decided to pull everyone out. Over 6,000 Japanese needed evacuation from Kiska, and it would be very tricky for the Japanese to get past Admiral Kincaid's blockade. Then we finished up the West Hubei Offensive, with part of it being known colloquially as the Rice Bowl Campaign. The Japanese had brutalized the Chinese, but were stopped short of invading Chongqing or Sichuan province. Thus for the Chinese, it was a victory, but at the same time, the Japanese had secured exactly what they wanted, stealing vast amounts of property, notably rice. Steamers began to leave Yuchang and sailed further west through the riverways acquiring large sums of goods to help Japan's China War. Today we are going to be diving back into the South Pacific. This episode is Operation Cartwheel Starts Rolling. Welcome back to the Pacific War Podcast week by week, and I'm your dutiful host, Craig Watson. But before we can begin, I just wanted to remind you all that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. Perhaps you want to learn a bit more about World War II? Kings and Generals has an assortment of episodes on World War II and much, much more, so go give them a look over at YouTube. So please, subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And hey, don't forget about our sister podcast over at the Age of Conquest, The Fall and Rise of China podcast, written and narrated by me. And if after all of that you are still hungry for some more history, why don't you check out my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel, over at YouTube, where I just released a podcast interview I did with Dave from the Cold War Channel. The subject was the firebombing of Japan and how it evolved during the Cold War. Also, just a friendly reminder, I myself now have a Patreon account, which can be found at www.patreon.com slash the Pacific War Channel. And over there, this month's exclusive podcast is part two of my series about General Ishiwara Kanji, the mastermind behind the Mukden incident and the author behind the final war theory. Check it out, it would mean a lot to me. So honestly, for quite a while now, we've been hitting the North Pacific and the China theaters, which certainly was a change of pace. But as you can imagine, these events do not simply move along in a vacuum. Yes, a lot was going on in the other theaters, and this episode is going to be tackling a lot of different events, so buckle up, buckos. First, we're going to be talking about Operation Cartwheel. The ultra-intelligence that brought Yamamoto's death was not the only information that the Americans received in April. A lifeboat bearing a list of the names of 40,000 active Japanese officers washed ashore after the Battle of the Bismarck Sea. Using this, cryptographers were able to match each name to radio signals from Japanese army units, ensuring General MacArthur's intelligence remained as operationally up-to-date as it could be. At the same time, William Bull Halsey showed up on April the 15th to Brisbane to meet with MacArthur, and the two hit it off. Halsey would write later on about this first encounter. Five minutes after I reported, I felt as if we were lifelong friends. I have seldom seen a man who makes a quicker, stronger, more favorable impression. He was then 63, but he could have passed as 50. His hair was jet black, his eyes were clear, his carriage erect. My mental picture poses him against the background of these discussions. He is pacing his office, almost wearing a groove between his large bare desk and a portrait of George Washington that faced it. 
His corncob pipe is in his hand, though I rarely saw him smoke it. And he is making his points in a diction I have never heard surpassed. Both men would hammer out a plan. On April the 26th, it was a revision to MacArthur's Elkton plan. This would be known as Elkton 3, but it was soon to be co-named as Operation Cartwheel. The plan consisted of 13 amphibious landings in just six months, with MacArthur and Halsey providing maximum support to each other's efforts. The first phase of the plan would see MacArthur seizing Woodlark and the Kirwina Islands, while Halsey invaded New Georgia. Phase 2 would commence two months after the start of the offensive, where MacArthur would capture Ley, Salamawa, and Finchafen. Phase 3 would be the seizure of the Shortland Islands and Bougainville in the South Pacific. In December, MacArthur would seize Cape Gloucester in the western New Britain, and shortly after that they would seize Rabaul. Halsey's forces would knock out Japanese airbases on Buka, allowing MacArthur's men to clear the northwestern half of New Guinea. By January of 1944, MacArthur and Halsey figured they would be ready for a final assault on Rabaul, which was their ultimate objective for a victory. MacArthur resisted sending details of their joint plan to Washington, probably fearing the Europe-first-obsessed chief of staffs would veto their ambitious thrust. He told them only that he anticipated that the first move towards the Woodlark and Kerwina Islands would start in June. However, this was too slow for Admiral King. King wanted his protege, Admiral Nimitz, to begin a thrust into the Central Pacific. Heading through the Marshalls in November, and he proposed shifting the Marines' 1st and 2nd Divisions the ones that fell under MacArthur and Halsey's command, to help with the Marshall's offensive. This alongside two bomber groups promised to George Kenney. MacArthur was very pissed off, and he sent a distress message to George Marshall, damning the entire Central Pacific strategy as, quote, Unnecessary and even wasteful diversion from what should be the main Pacific strategy. And of course, we all know the main Pacific strategy was MacArthur's. He added in this, from a broad strategic viewpoint, I am convinced that the best course of offensive action in the Pacific is a movement from Australia through New Guinea to Mindanao. Air supremacy is essential to success. For the southwestern strategy, where large numbers of land-based aircraft are utterly essential and will immediately cut the enemy lines from Japan to his conquered territory to the southward. Pulling any additional heavy bomber groups would, in my opinion, collapse the offensive effort in the Southwest Pacific area. In my judgment, the offensive against Rabaul should be considered the main effort, and it should not be nullified or weakened. All of that talk was fine and dandy, but King was adamant. There would indeed be a thrust through the Central Pacific led by the Navy, with its main axis passing through the Marshalls and Marianas towards Japan which, might I remind you, listening bypasses the Philippines. It, of course, was a strategy completely at odds with MacArthur's. Marshall supported King, as did the other joint chiefs. But in the end, MacArthur's whining forced King to relent on the transfer of the two marine divisions and the bomber groups. Thus, MacArthur revealed his timetable for Operation Cartwheel. He told them he planned to take Kirowina and Woodlark in the Trobriand Islands around June the 30th. The advance on New Georgia would start on the same date, and in September, the 1st Cavalry and three Australian divisions would begin operations against the Medang-Salamawa area. Meanwhile, MacArthur's 43rd Division would invade southern Bougainville on October the 15th, while the 1st Marines and 32nd Division would invade Cape Gloucester on December the 1st. 
For all of these amphibious landings, there was no serious problems when it came to shipping and landing craft. That is for Nimitz designated areas. However, at the beginning of 1943, MacArthur had practically no amphibious equipment nor experts in these types of operations. The only units available to him were the Army's Engineering Special Boat Brigades, which had very few small craft. The man who would be responsible for the amphibious assaults during much of the coming campaigns was to be Rear Admiral Daniel Barbie. On January the 10th of 1943, he took command of the forces that would be later designated the 7th Amphibious Force. Barbie from the offset established good relations with MacArthur because, well, anyone who worked with MacArthur had to. He had nearly nothing to work with in the beginning, but started with establishing bases at Taboo Bay, near the mouth of the Brisbane River and Point Stephens. MacArthur had requested more small craft and transports as early as mid-1942, but because of Europe and the Central Pacific being more of a priority, little had come his way. Before the equipment came, MacArthur was receiving American and Australian troops, so he got Barbie's team to improvise. They began training the troops in debarking from larger ships down cargo nets to smaller landing craft. However, Barbie had no attack transports, which was the key to this kind of operation. To solve this, he rigged nets from cliffs, and boy oh boy, that must have been fun. I don't know, I'm pretty afraid of heights, I can imagine it was terrifying. The first landing ship tanks and landing craft tanks would not arrive until mid-January, and on Easter Sunday, 13 landing craft infantry were delivered giving them very little time before the first operations were to begin so that they could train the crews on how to use them. Now over on the other side, Halsey had his own three-phase operation. Part 1 saw the invasion of New Georgia. Part 2 was the seizure of Buen and Ricotta Bay, if possible. And the last, number 3, was the seizure of Keita and the neutralization of Buka. Phase 1 was codenamed Operation Toenails. Halsey described the operation to Nimitz as, quote, a infiltration and staging operation. The operation would see simultaneous landings at Wickham Anchorage to hit its landing craft base, Segi Point for its airfield site, Vero Harbor for its small craft base, and Rendova Harbor, which would serve as a new base to stage troops for future attacks upon Munda. This would all occur on June the 30th. The main force assigned to Operation Toenails was General Hester's 43rd Division. Admiral Turner and his Task Force 31 were in charge of the amphibious landings, while Admiral Fitch would toss 1,182 aircraft to give them air power, and Admiral Amesworth and Merrill's Task Force 36 would provide further naval support. And that's a lot of aircraft. On the other side, inter-service coordination between the Japanese generals and admirals remained intermittent and largely ad hoc. Well, when it wasn't, you know, outright hostile. General Imamura's 8th Area Army HQ at Rabaul stood above Haikatake's 17th Army, compromising three divisions spread over the Solomons and New Britain. And General Hatazo Adechi's 8th Army had three divisions over New Guinea. Troop reinforcements were arriving in Rabaul, bolstering the garrison at one point to 90,000 men. Vice Admiral Junichi Kuzaka remained in command of the naval forces at Rabaul, and he held responsibility for the defense of the Central Solomons. Admiral Manichi Goga had succeeded the slain Aisaruku Yamamoto as commander-in-chief of the combined fleet, based now out of truck. Nowhere in the theater was there a blended command. The army and navy had to coordinate their operations through a meticulous process known as Nimawashi, digging around the roots. 
for consensus. The Japanese moved new air units into the theater, including more of the elite carrier air crews that had trained and honed their skills prior to the war. But the loss ratios in air combat was ruining them. As a result of the devastating loss during the Battle of the Bismarck Sea, the Japanese were forced to change plans. The United States Air Force and the Royal Australian Air Force aircraft based at Port Moresby and Milne Bay had slaughtered an entire convoy of Japanese transports, attempting to land troops in the Lei Salamaua area, using a new technique called skip bombing. Imperial General Headquarters set up a Joint Army-Naval Investigation Board to study the disaster. Seeing the IGA accused the IGN of being too focused on the Solomons rather than New Guinea. The army argued New Guinea was vital for the national defenses and proposed that if a retreat became necessary, it would be as a direct result of the Navy's lack of support. If this were to happen, they would have to pull back and create a new defensive line from northwest New Guinea to Timor. The Navy's representatives argued that the Huan Peninsula must be held or its loss would swing open the western gate to Rabaul, forcing the combined fleet to withdraw from truck. Well, the fighting eventually resulted in an ultimatum, with both sides agreeing the Army-Navy operations should focus on eastern New Guinea. It is rather funny, I'm taking a little bit of a sidetrack here, just to explain something that I think we haven't really said in this entire series. Everybody knows about the infamous inter-service rivalry between the Army and the Navy for Japan during this time period. But one thing that I guess hasn't been mentioned in this series is the fact that things were swinging away from the Navy a bit. So as many of you probably know, there were, for example, two strategies just prior to the war, the Hokushinran, the Northern Strike Strategy, and the Nanshinran, Southern Strike Strategy. Now, not to say that this was the Army was all for Hokushinran and the Navy was all for Nanshinran, but kind of basically it was like that. Although Hideki Tojo and his faction notably did like Nanshinran more than Hokushinran. Now, as a result of taking Nanshinran as a course of action, and other things going on in the 1930s, I mean, the IGA did try to for a coup against their government, the Navy ended up getting more funding than the Army in a lot of ways. I think it goes without saying, and a lot of people don't even bat an eye at this, but Japanese went into this war with a heavily funded Navy, and it was at the cost of the Army, who were at war with China, mind you, and should have probably been receiving a lot of the funds. But as this series has gone on until mid to late 1943, the Navy is losing favor now, and they're actually losing funding. The losses at, you know, Coral Sea, Midway, the Bismarck Sea and such, you know, it's humiliating the Navy, and it is to the benefit of the Army. And you can see that right here. Whenever an ultimatum quote is made, it's basically the army winning arguments. And if these arguments were made at the very beginning of the war, the army would basically have no say. It was the Navy's show. I just wanted to point out that the Navy was losing its grip on the future of the war. It was decided that both the army and the Navy would literally operate as one unit because that would just go so well. The Central Solomons were still under the overall responsibility of the 8th Fleet, now commanded by Vice Admiral Baron Samajima Tomoshige, with some IJ units placed under naval command according to agreements made between General Imamura and Admiral Kuzaka. 
It seems the Japanese could get along a bit once in a while, as just like Halsey and MacArthur did. And indeed, Imamura and Kuzaka developed a deep friendship. Both of their staffs ate lunch together once or twice a week, where Southeast Area affairs were discussed informally and their respective staffs got to know each other personally. Kuzaka went on the record to say, quote, Imamura was a very great person. Many army units would be sent to reinforce the new Georgia defenses, and by late May, the bulk of the 229th Regiment arrived to Munda, and the 13th Regiment went to Villa by late June. Imamura placed both regiments under the command of Major General Sasaki Noburo's Southeast Detachment, who responded directly to Samajima. Samajima's first orders were to arrange responsibilities between General Sasaki's Southeast Detachment and Admiral Oda's 8th Combined SNLF seeing Sasaki in charge of Munda and Oda in charge of Inogai and Barioko's area. If the situation arose, command would be unified under the senior officer on New Georgia, General Sasaki. Oda would also have responsibility for coastal artillery defense, radio communications, and barge operations. Admiral Koga, in his new role as commander of the combined fleet, preemptively sent more of his forces back to the home islands in preparation to reinforce that too. But as the fate of the Aleutians became sealed by late May, Koga decided to concentrate the combined fleet at Truk, so it would be primed and ready for a decisive naval battle with the Americans. Admiral Kuzaka then launched another air counteroffensive after Ego, this one taking place in June. The aim was yet again to prevent the Americans from invading the Central Solomons. Kuzaka began tossing waves of Bettys against American shipping east of San Cristobal and night raids over Guadalcanal. Simultaneously, he also unleashed Operation SO, a major offensive to smash Allied air power in the Solomon Islands, and Operation SE, which targeted airfields and shipping. He sent 105 Zeros to sweep and bomb the enemy airfields with a new type of gasoline bomb. Operation SE began with 25 Val dive bombers attacking U.S. shipping in the Guadalcanal Tulagi area, and Operation SO began on June the 7th with 81 Zeros led by Lieutenant Commander Shindo Saburo assaulting the Russell Islands. However, the Russell group ran into 104 Allied fighters who shot down over nine zeros. A follow-up attack was made on the 12th with 74 zeros, this time led by Lieutenant Miyano Zenjiro, and the Japanese would lose another seven fighters but take down six American. As usual, the Japanese pilots made wild claims, stating the first attack saw 41 American fighters shot down and the second around 24. Kuzaka had launched the main attack of Operation SC on June the 16th, led by Lieutenant Commander Saburo again. This one was consisting of 24 VALs and 70 Zero escorts who swung south of the Russells, turning at Beaufort Bay. Yet again, they were intercepted, this time by 74 Allied fighters at Beaufort Bay, and the ensuing air battle rolled over the mountainous spine of Guadalcanal. This time, the Japanese lost 15 Zeros and 13 VALs while only shooting down 6 Allied fighters. The Japanese lost first-rate pilots such as Lieutenant Miano, who had scored 16 kills during the war. Again, Japanese veteran pilots were being bled dry, severely affecting the nation's air power overall. Despite their waves being intercepted nearly every time, the VALs were able to press through with their attacks and they managed to hit the cargo ships Kaleno and LST-340. But such results were hardly worth the cost, so Kuzaka began to urgently request reinforcements. The carrier Rioa would lend her bombers to replace the lost ones, arriving on the 2nd of July. 
The losses taught the Japanese pilots some bitter lessons, and they never again would fly over Guadalcanal during daylight, as the American cap was far too powerful. Now, over in New Guinea, General Blamey was laying out his plan for the capture of Ley, codenamed Operation Postern, which was approved by MacArthur's headquarters pretty early. Before the Allies would invade Woodlock or Kiruina Islands, MacArthur prescribed the seizure of Ley, and of Markham and Ramu Valley. The Markham operations were to be based on Port Moresby, while the North Coast operations would be staged from Buna and Milna Bay. The invasion of Woodlark and Kiruna Islands, codenamed Operation Chronicle, would be entrusted to Lieutenant General Walter Kruger's 6th Army. The islands northeast of the Papuan coast would allow the Allies to have air bases closer to Japanese targets in the Solomons and around Rabaul. Thus, Blamey had devised his plan to secure the northeastern part of New Guinea. The first phase of his plan was Ley and Markham and Ramu Valleys. The second phase was to seize some shore base within 60 miles of Ley. He chose Nassau Bay. Nassau Bay would help with the supply problems in the Wau, Mubo, Babati area, as all supplies were being flown in at that point from Port Moresby. The mountains were a serious obstacle for transport aircraft, not to mention the Japanese fighters that could spring out of nearby Ley at any moment. Taking Nassau Bay would greatly shorten supply lines for Allied troops fighting in the Salamau region, and it would also allow a junction to be made with General Savage's forces operating at Mubo. The 162nd American Regiment, led by Colonel Archibald McKechnie, would help hit Nassau Bay. They would be known as the McKechnie Force. They would seize the high grounds around Goodview Junction and Mount Tambu, and the ridges running down therefrom to the sea allowing the Australians to link up with the 15th Brigade at Bob D and the American landing force at Nassau. D-Day for the Nassau landing was set for June the 30th, and it was all going to act as a feint, hoping to lure the Japanese forces from Ley to Salamaua. Now the last time we left off in New Guinea, General Savage had launched a limited offensive against the Japanese at Mubo and Bob D Ridge. General Nakano was certain Salamaua was the main Allied target, and this prompted him on the 29th to order Major General Chuichi Moroya to lead the 51st Division to fortify it. In the process, Moroya's men expelled Wharf's commandos from the northern ridge. To the east of Mubo, Brigadier Moten was trying to take the pimple, but his 17th Brigade would be performing more patrolling than actual attacks throughout the later half of May. Eventually, Savage would relieve the exhausted 2 and 7th Battalion with the 2 and 6th Battalion led by Lieutenant Colonel Frederick Wood who would begin an advance on May the 27th. Meanwhile, Nakano had brought more reinforcements to defend Mubo, and he launched a strong counterattack in early May, nearly breaking through towards the main Australian camp at Lababia Ridge. On May the 23rd, Nakano received two battalions of the 66th Regiment, and he began to work out a plan for assembling supplies and ammunition in the Mubo area to prepare for a major offensive. Men would move at night in a single file along narrow jungle trails carrying the materials by hand through mud and rain. The main track was on a slope on Comadium Ridge, known to the Japanese as Regret Hill, as the hard-working soldiers became more exhausted with each passing day marching along it. The Japanese sought to clear out Lababia Ridge as far as Guadalgasal, thus securing Mubo in the process. On June the 3rd, Allied patrols discovered Nakano had reoccupied Markham Point, which forced Savage to keep the bulk of the 24th away from the action at Bob and Mubo. From their camp at the bank of the Markham Point, Savage ordered patrols to investigate the Nadzab area. On June the 14th, a three-man patrol came across some friendly natives in a village called Gabsonkek, who informed them of Japanese activity in the area. 
They had this to say. The Japs come to the village every day between 10 and 12 hours, taking everything in sight, pigs, fowls, fruit, etc., without paying. They take native girls back to Lei, if they can catch them. The guides would not proceed further to Nagasawampum, because Japan man come up a big road, cut us off. And they would not go to Nara Kapor, because they claim there were too many Japs and two big guns. The patrol went back to camp by the 18th Informing Command. A second patrol was made, led by Lieutenant Dave Burke, who forded the Tabali River to get to Nassau Bay. Their report indicated the area was suitable for landing and road construction. To further prepare for the American landings, the Australians began building a footbridge over the Betoy River, and they blazed a track up the Betoy Ridge. On the Babia Ridge, the main defensive position withdrew to a junction on the Jap tracks where it would be easier to counter enemy encirclement attempts. Reports came in from forward platoons that there was considerable enemy activity along the Comantia Mobo track. This was Nikhil's 66th Regiment carrying the food and ammunition in preparation for the upcoming offensive. In response to this, Savage ordered Brigadier Frank Hoskin of the 15th Brigade to assume command of the Babdi Ridge area and to begin harassing the Japanese supply route. Meanwhile, the 58th and 59th Battalion relieved the 2 and 3rd Independent Company of Hoat and a party of Wharf's commandos who were sent to attack the Comantia Mubo track. However, disaster struck as the Australians ran into their own booby traps on June the 16th, suffering a number of casualties. By June the 20th, the commandos established ambush positions along a ridge near the junction of Stephen's track and the Comantium track. They successfully ambushed some Japanese later that day, killing a few men and capturing some very valuable documents about the arrival of Nakano's 66th Regiment. However, by this point, Nakano's units were already assembling in front of Lababia Ridge, and the offensive was about to begin. But now we are going to finish up the episode talking a bit about some developments in India. After the disastrous first Arakan campaign, Marshal Wavell was receiving a promotion and by promotion, I mean he was being kicked upstairs, as they say in Britain. He was succeeding Lord Linlithgow as the new Viceroy of India. But until then, he began looking into training his forces in jungle warfare as the bitter lessons learned at Arakan proved the men were, well, very unprepared. Wavell also wanted to investigate what the hell happened during the disaster. So he sent Major General Roland Richardson in late May to head an infantry committee at New Delhi for the task. The committee's report about the Arakan campaign found the troops' fighting spirit was fundamentally sound, but the major problems that affected their combat performance were more about overexpansion of the army in India. The army mobilization had been rushed, they barely met basic training, and the supplying of their sheer numbers was catastrophic. There were also issues regarding their low status, inferior pay for the infantry, which further deprived them of skilled and well-educated recruits. Yet above all else, the infantry committee found their lack of jungle training to be the most egregious issue, as observed, This is the most urgent problem facing us, and one which requires prompt and energetic action if results are to be produced in time for the winter campaigning season. The lack of jungle training severely undermined their ability to fight efficiently and ultimately led to the breakdown of infantry battalions in the Arakan. And of course, there was the ever-present unseen enemy, that of malaria, alongside an assortment of other ailments that was wrecking havoc upon the men. 
But many of these problems could not be tackled until June the 20th, when General Claude Auchinleck was officially appointed as the new commander-in-chief in India. For General Slim, this was excellent news, and certainly worked in his favor alongside the sacking of Irwin. The Auk, as he was called, had always been a slim supporter, and he was the one who had recommended him to Wavell for advancement when Wavell was commander-in-chief of the Middle East back in 1941. The Auk had wanted to retain Slim in the Middle East and fought hard to dissuade Wavell from taking him over to Burma. Churchill never held Wavell in high regard and was tired of his quasi-academic effusions and preferred a, quote, fighting general in Burma. Alongside the Oak, Irwin was replaced with General George Gifford, and Slim had this to say of his replacement. The new army commander had a great effect on me. A tall, good-looking man in the late 50s, who had obviously kept himself physically and mentally in first-class condition. There was nothing dramatic about him in either appearance or speech. He abhorred the theatrical and was one of the very few generals, indeed men in any position, I have known who really disliked publicity. But there was much more to General Gifford than good taste, good manners and unselfishness. He understood the fundamentals of war, that soldiers must be trained before they can fight, fed before they can march, and relieved before they are worn out. He understood that frontline commanders should be spared responsibilities in the rear and that soundness of organization and administration is worth more than specious shortcuts in victory. Okenleck went to work from the offset of his new command by improving the welfare, health, and the feeding of the Indian Army to foster improved morale. General Gifford, as the new commander of the Eastern Army, had Major General Temple Gurdon to oversee some reforms for training and the development of new doctrines. A lot of effort was made to conduct intensive collective training under jungle conditions. The men would train near Nasik, Ranchi, Dehradun, and the Jiangxi Naogong Lantipur region. Commanders low to high were given a chance at handling units to improve standards of staff work, practice combined army tactics, and build team spirit. Okenleck also initiated a policy of active patrolling at Assam and Arakan to gather intelligence and maintain touch with the Japanese, as to destroy the feeling that they were super soldiers. I would like to take this time to remind all of you that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. Please go subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And hey, don't forget about our sister podcast over at the Age of Conquest, the Fall and Rise of China podcast, written and narrated by me. And if after all that you are still hungry for some more history, why don't you check out my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel, over at YouTube. Over there, I just released an interview podcast I did with Dave from the Cold War channel on the subject of the firebombing campaign against Japan and how it evolved during the Cold War. Also, just a friendly reminder, I myself now have a Patreon account, which can be found at www.patreon.com slash the Pacific War channel. This month's exclusive podcast over there is part two of my series on Ishiwara Kanji, the mastermind behind the Mukden incident and the author behind the final war theory. Check it out. It would mean a lot to me. A lot of chess pieces were moving around the board this week. Bitter lessons had been learnt in multiple theaters of the war, and now it came time to reorganize and try some new things to ultimately bring the war against Japan to a closer end.